I just got back from Holland where I found out um, it's the tallest country in the world. Um, and, uh, and I felt rather like an underachiever um, throughout, throughout the whole time I was there. Uh, one of those times was in a classroom. I was speaking to a group of 50 pastors and there was a, a whiteboard and the whiteboard began here and, and went uh, a few feet further up. And I felt so awkward that I texted Kip and Pete afterwards. I said, hey, you know, Holland's the tallest country in the world. I feel like an underachiever. Even the urinals are almost too high. <laughs> and Kip texted back, I'm never going to Holland. Um, uh, when I was talking to those, those pastors, the group of 50 pastors, first time any of this has ever happened to me in my life. Uh, I'm sitting there. I was the first one out of the gate. There was going to be a, a kind of the national director um, of IJM, uh, kind of their international programs director, was going to speak next, and then a pastor uh, from uh, formerly the bishop of Kampala, Uganda, uh, who's been working on a lot of political reform. So we were kind of in this pastor's track, but I was going to go first. And they spoke a whole bunch of Dutch, which I don't understand. Um, even though I once spoke it fluently. I lived in Holland when I was four or five and six, and, and it sounds familiar, but I don't really understand any of it. Uh, but I was sitting there, and they were talking a lot in Dutch, and then uh, I was called up. And I thought, okay, great. And so I went up. I had just 25 minutes, and people had been wanting me to talk as well as discuss the U.S. elections, kind of a hot topic globally. And so I had 25 minutes to try and do all of this. And so I said to them, you know what? Uh, instead of telling a, a, a fun story about my family to endear myself to you all, your new audience, uh, your pastors, so I'm just going to just launch right into it because, you know, we have short time, our time is short. And then I proceeded immediately to start deconstructing the gospel, which for pastors is a red flag, right? And I was doing it for a purpose of kind of going back to Scripture in the text and saying, you know, what, what is the gospel that we've been given? Because... Frankly, a lot of pastors are talking to me that the gospel I was taught in seminary, uh, the way I was taught how to talk about the gospel, um, has this strange ceiling, and I find that I'm ill-prepared to, to engage my people on, on kind of half of the things that are being talked about in the world today, that there's this strange kind of ceiling. So something went wrong somewhere if the gospel I have can't say anything to people, right, and, and in the context they're in. So... We were kind of going on this path, this journey, and we got 10 minutes in, and uh, I just figured the Dutch are pretty stern folk. Uh, they, they don't give you much by way of body language. That was kind of my assumption. Uh, but about 10 minutes in, a 50-year-old man sitting kind of in front of me just kind of holds his hand up like this, waves it a little bit, and I say, I say, yeah, um, you have a question, do you need me to slow down? They all speak very good English. It's like... It's not the second language for the Dutch. It's like 1.5. So they all speak very good. But I'm like, maybe he needs me to slow down. And he's raising his hand. So I call on him and he says, um, who are you? <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, excuse me? He goes, I'm sorry, but who are you? What do you do? Why are we listening to you? Like, I need some kind of context. And I said, was I... Was I not introduced? And, and 50 heads go. <laughs> so the first time this ever happened to me, I thought in all the Dutch that someone had said who I was, um, and, but they didn't. And so I just proceed to jump up with, with nobody knowing who I am and, and, and deconstruct the gospel. And it, it wasn't going over well. So anyways, um, I had to backtrack and give an introduction to myself and, and then continue. Um, that being said... Most of you know who I am. Some of you might not, um, but I'm going to jump right in today. Uh, I'm doing something that uh, as of 9, 10 uh, this morning, my wife told me I should do. Um, so you can't blame the elders. Uh, they're completely without knowledge, um, but my wife you can blame. Um, she, uh, she, I'm fully on her authority this morning. Uh, and here's where I'm coming from, just by way of context, and then I need to move on because um, time is short. Uh, 
I haven't said anything really since the elections. I went, um, I stayed up. And by the way, I'm not going into the elections, but I just want to give you the last two weeks of my life. Um, stayed up watching the elections because, quite frankly, it was fascinating. And Peter King at CNN with that little electronic board of his is mesmerizing, right? He's so good at that thing. They got to find a, a way to use it more than every two years when there's elections. Um, but, uh, but so I was like 1.30 in the morning. I was supposed to wake up to go to Holland to, to the Netherlands at like 3.45 in the morning. And so for the most part, I just stayed up, laid down kind of for a little bit, but just stayed up all night and then left the country, uh, which is really interesting. When I landed in the Netherlands, they, they all were joking like, hey, we'll take you back. Um, <laughs> just, it's like, no, I can't speak the language. Um, and, uh, and then was gone for a week. So was, was away from home for the first week kind of after that. And then for the, for the last week, I've been, for the most part, back and, and just trying to survive the day with crazy nine-hour jet lag and just trying to wrap my head around as a, as a pastor, what, what is the call to God's people uh, in this time? What's the call to God's people for us in our relationship with God? What's the call to God's people for us in our relationship to ourselves? What's the call to God's people for us in our relationship to others? What's the call for, for us as God's people in our relationship to the world? Bishop from Kampala, fascinating, just looks at me um, and says, do you not know that you're electing a, a leader for the world? Um, he says, we didn't ask you to be the leader of the world, but you are. And when you go to the polls, um, you are electing a leader for the world. Does does anyone take that into consideration in the United States? And my answer was, no. no. Um, and most people would say, we never asked to be the leader of the world. That was a decision made maybe before our time or this or that or the other. But, but quite frankly, it's just interesting to get different people's perspectives. So as a pastor, I'm beginning to wrestle through or trying to wrestle through what, is, what does it mean to live faithfully and with integrity in all these different spheres? And quite frankly, that message looks very different. So I've been being ripped apart this week trying to think of um, the sermon and, and wrestle with, with text and, and, and the desire to come before our community and to, as the people of God, talk about the spiritual things in our life and move on. And what I've, what I've come to the conviction of is I don't have one message. I have three. Um, and they're radically different messages. And what I would say is that they fit into three different buckets of my life. The first one being a prophetic bucket. The prophetic role is a unique role. It's a different role. And, and it's, not, it's not the same as the pastoral voice. The pastoral voice is a fatherly role. It's a shepherd role. It's, it's got much more of a nurturing role, much more of a we instead of you kind of role. And then there's a third role, which is really uh, different altogether, but it's kind of a priestly role um, that looks at the church, uh, the body of Christ, and, and really looks at what is, what is this idea of the broken body of Christ for a broken and fallen world as we look to see it redeemed. And what is the role of Christ's body if we were taking the Lord's Supper or us as the living picture of Christ's body. What is the role for the church? How do we see the church? How do we understand, uh, understand the church? And so what I'm going to do is give three short messages, and they're going to be completely different. And one is going to be the prophetic, one is going to be the pastoral, one is going to be the priestly. And the first two, the, the prophetic and the pastoral, um, may be for you, may not be for you. The priestly one is for all of us. Um, if you don't like one of them, um, check your fantasy, uh, because within 10, 15 minutes, you will be on to a different sermon. Um, I asked Neil Cole and, uh, and Rick Earhart to play backstop back there, so no one can leave, uh, because the, there, you'll at least like two out of the three parts or something like that. And just remember um, that it's Tamara's fault. Um, the prophetic. The title of this sermon is Give us Barabbas. It has nothing to do with Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. 
You see, when Jesus was brought before Pilate after a culmination of events that threatened the, the religious and political authorities uh, and began to galvanize support or, or unity in their desire to rid themselves of Jesus, they slowly moved towards using the political system for um, self-preservation. Do you understand self-preservation? I'm not making that up. That's biblical. Let's just look at the text. It says that the chief priest accused him, Jesus, of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer uh, these many things that you're, they're accusing you of? And Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Give us Barabbas. It was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. You see, it's my strong conviction, and the last time we spoke, last time I was here talking, trying to say that when we take a piece of the gospel and hold it out as the entirety of the gospel, we, we end up with some really confused or, 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 or crossed wires. And a piece of the gospel is this mechanism of salvation where Jesus dies on the cross, his sins for ours, so that we can be saved and be reconciled to God and then know that our hope is secure that we can go to heaven. Okay? Um, or be, you know, as Pete talked last week, uh, that we can look forward to the resurrection uh, of our bodies along the lines of Jesus' resurrected body. Okay? That this storyline in the 1800s with the beauty of American, um, with American ingenuity began to be mechanized. Um, I call it the salvation industrial complex. And the salvation industrial complex was when Charles Finney said, maybe instead of just praying for revival, that it might come um, because revivals had happened before, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and he was on the tail end of that that, that great awakening. But it was always this crazy thing where it was over broad areas of, of land, multiple denominations, lasting almost a decade, and, and this crazy change coming over people. And, and the theologians of the day were like, man, we pray for revival, but God, in his wisdom, his knowledge, sends the Holy Spirit at the appointed time, and God brings revival. Charles Finney got to the point where he says, what if we can actually be a part of that process of instigating revival? In other words, if we take Romans and say, if, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that you'll, you're going to be saved, you are. What if we just need people to make a confession that they accept Jesus? And so if we get them into a room and we, we articulate this or explain this to them or, or, or really try and um, draw them into the, the clarity of understanding of the enormity of the decision that they need to make and the consequences thereunto that they will actually want to proclaim the name of Jesus so that they can be saved. So Jonathan Edwards, who, who's a theologian I greatly admire, in his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon, which I don't agree with, talked about this, this, this picture of we're being hung over the fires of hell like a spider by, by the thinness of that thread. You, my brothers and sisters, are being hung over the fires of hell by the thinness of that thread. Imagine the torment. Imagine the excruciating uh, uh, agony of being in hell. How could you ever want to live like that? How could you ever want your loved ones to live like that? That is how close you are to the precipice unless, unless you simply accept this offer of salvation that Jesus extends to you. How do we do that? You do that by coming forward to the altar 
by saying this prayer that we now call the sinner's prayer. Um, and then when you're done with that prayer, I can say to you, your sins are now forgiven. No matter what you do the rest of your life, Jesus has got it covered. And I, I actually, in that role, which is a role I've been at before when I worked at Christian camps and when I was a youth pastor, I'm actually doing something that, that evangelicalism taught me to do, but Jesus said don't do. I can't blanketly tell people they're saved. I don't have that knowledge. Yet I was, I was given the formula that allowed me, if they said that prayer, to step back and say, praise God, you did it. And not only that, I was given the idea that the ends justifies the means. Again, American ingenuity here, that if we just ratchet up the emotion enough, if we just play the music a certain way, dim the lights, and this goes all the way back to Finney, and, and we just go round and round enough so that they can be in the moment enough that we can get them over, over that moment of decision. And... and and isn't it worth it because we're talking about the salvation of souls here. And so we, we kind of end up doing something really interesting. We take this idea of costly grace where Jesus says you have to die to yourself so that I can raise you up. It's going to cost you everything, your whole life. We take that thing and we start saying, look, all you got to do is just do the sinner's prayer. All you got to do is kind of follow my instructions tonight and then I can give you the, the free pass for the rest of your life. Not only that, heaven included. You know what? I really want you to do this so much that I'll X out the cost and pretty soon it's 99 cents. It's free. All you got to do is, is take it and then I'll bless you. But what's really motivating you at that point? What's motivating you when you go to... Banana Republic, and they tell you it's 60% off, and if you sign up for their credit card, you can get 80% off. What's motivating you? What's motivating you is self-interest. What motivated me in my teenage years was self-interest. I don't want to go to hell. Do I want to live a godly life? No. Am I going to treat my sister nice? <laughs> no. Am I going to think about what I'm going to do with my life so that I can be a witness to, to Jesus Christ? No. I don't need to. I'm already saved. And if he doesn't like it, well, he's the guy that forgives me anyways, and he'll get over it. But there's nothing, nothing here about the lordship of Jesus Christ that's entering into the equation. I've accepted a transaction told me by a preacher so that I can preserve myself. Another way of saying self-interest is self-preservation. So let me tell you my conviction is that we're starting in the wrong place with politics. All of us. Me. You. All of us. I think we start with policy. I think we start with, with decisions of Supreme Courts. I think we start with um, which political affiliation is somebody. What picks might they make? How do they make me feel? We start with the politics. We don't start with our Christian values. Our Christian values are that I love my neighbor and I welcome the immigrant. Before I decide how many illegal immigrants we should tolerate or how many legal immigrants we should allow into the country. I don't start there. I start first with what are the values of the kingdom of God? And then how might I reflect those out? Um, and so we have this weird thing where Augustine said there's the city of God and there's the city of man. The city of God and the city of man. The city of God and the city of man. And, and I think we've been given a gospel that is so characterized by self-preservation that this statement becomes one that now haunts me. If what we preach is a gospel that has been simply reduced to self-preservation, then how can we expect our ethics or politics to reflect anything but the same? If the gospel we preach has been reduced simply to self-preservation, we shouldn't be surprised to see our ethics and politics reflect the same. You see, Barabbas is our desire to say when the call of Christ becomes too extreme and threatens our self-preservation, 
that we can choose the way of the world. And by the way, that's either political party. When the call of Christ and discipleship of Christ begins to ratchet up above what I thought I had to pay when I accepted that, that nice offer and begins to feel like it's going to cost me everything, I can react in a way where maybe my trust or maybe my energy, maybe my striving looks to say that my problems are going to be solved by the way of the world. Give me Barabbas. You see, Americans, we, and I teach justice for a living, human rights, and I can talk to you all about John Locke and, and the emergence of human rights language, life, liberty, property. We've talked about this in the church and how John, uh, Jefferson t- turned it into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which for him was synonymous with property. And we take these as, as human rights that are given to us inalienably by, by our creator. But then we have Jesus who the only words he said to Pilate were these. Pilate says um, something about his life and Jesus cuts him off and says, oh, you don't take my life. I lay my life down. It's the one part where the record needed to be set straight for Pilate and for anyone else there was that you might be going through all of these proceedings and I might die at the end of it, but let's be very clear what I'm doing here. For the city of God, in order to serve God's will, out of my love for God and in my submission to God, Jesus says, I lay my life down. Life. Jesus even says, um, true love is when you're willing to lay your life down for another. So life Is it something we can cling to as a right, as self-preservation? Or is it something that we hold loosely, realizing it's not our own anymore? Life, liberty. Jesus says if a Roman soldier, Roman centurion grabs you, takes away your liberty, and conscripts you to carry his knapsack, his armor, the weight that he doesn't want to have to bear so that he can be ready to fight at a moment's notice, and that you're being put in that subservient slave position where the dignity of it, that someone would just grab you at random and control you, take away your liberty, and ask you to go the full measure of what the law would say you'd have to go. When you are are asked to do this, Jesus says, "Here's, here's a new thought. Um, Go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. See, your liberty isn't really what you're fighting for. You're you're a kingdom uh, citizen. You you belong to the city of God. And and the things that happen in the city of man are opportunities for you to bear testimony and give witness to the fact that you are loved and empowered by somebody wholly other and, and that you can call into questions the very power structures of the world. And Jesus says, it'll really throw people off. You go the extra mile and they will know something's different about you. Life, liberty, property. Jesus says, you have two jackets? Give one to someone in need. You have two houses? Here's an idea. Give one away. Jesus says, your property is a privilege that you get to steward because all things belong to God. And that stuff that you have is your opportunity to be a brother or a sister to your fellow man. But don't think that it belongs to you lest what happened in Nebuchadnezzar happens to you. Jesus prophetically speaks to us a different kind of message that says, you are going to be radically countercultural here. And you're going to, if you follow me and want to look like me, you are going to find yourself in a position that either you two are being crucified or maybe you're standing in the crowd eschewing that and saying, give me Barabbas instead. And so the first sermon that I'd be giving if I was at a conference right now and wasn't speaking to you and I just didn't have to worry about the relationship dynamic at all would be just to say for me to be faithful to the gospel is for me to call us myself included uh, into the light to to see if we actually understand the gospel or if we've counted the cost 
Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, you don't start building a building and then leave it half finished because you didn't count whether or not you had enough money to finish it. You don't go into battle if you've only counted half your troops and you don't understand if you're actually going to win the war. Neither should you come and follow me unless you fully understand the implications of that decision. Don't let an, an evangelist give you a false understanding of what it means to leave the old life and to be resurrected into a new life where you're following me. Rather, be sober-minded, not emotionally charged. Sit down and count the cost. That's the message I'd be bringing if it was the prophetic. Last thought on that. I was trying to figure out the best way to write this down for Twitter. and didn't fit all the way in. Um, so I shortened it and then it didn't look right. But here's something I've been wrestling with myself. If we dim our light when the world gets dark, we should realize that we were only trying to hide not shine. If, if the light in the room lowers, it, it makes you stick out. And if you don't want to stick out, well, then you lower your light too. And you get underneath the radar and you keep the status quo because you know what? I'm just trying to get on in life. I'm a good person. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. You know, all this stuff, like, I, I'm just going to take it easy here and you see what's going on? Brothers and sisters, we have a beautiful opportunity. The world's getting dark. People should be understanding their need for love, understanding in their confusion that they need direction, understanding in the darkness that they, they want to look for light and to follow it if it would but shine so they could see it. But when you stick out, when you're the tall poppy, what well, that really feels like it costs, doesn't it? That's what I'm wrestling with. I don't want to pay the cost. I don't want to offend anyone in this church. I don't want any of you to leave. I don't want any of you to stop tithing. Um, I don't want my wife to have to go to the grocery store and run into any of you that left because of things I say, and she gets that awkward shunning. You see, because um, you're still going to be friends with people in your small group when you leave this church. That's not going to change. But somehow when you leave this church, in your mind, based on past experience, you know that we're kind of breaking up, you and I, even though I'm not doing anything. And you know, with breakups, it's, we say we're going to be friends, but it's hard to. And so when my wife sees you in the grocery store, usually you'll skip an aisle or two and avoid it. And she'll come home to me and express the the pain of how do I walk around in this town just with a desire to love people and be in relationship and have to navigate that. So I am conflicted. And then I read words of Michael McBride, a brother uh, down in the Bay Area, African-American pastor who's a very good friend. Here's the, the sermon notes from his sermon this morning as he talks to his entirely African-American congregation, almost entirely. Here are two, two bullet points from his sermon. While many evangelicals tell us to pray and worship, they and their churches vote, do business, and preach in ways that reinforce racism. And then he wants to warn his congregation to be very suspicious of evangelical pastors whose best response is to solve racism is prayer and worship. Hashtag more than pray. See, I live, I live with tensions, too. To honor one circle of friends or, or, or people, um, to what degree is that dishonor another circle of friends or people? And if I honor them, does that somehow become confusing? Because we only get a small amount of time once a week, and, and we don't do redux anymore. And so my, my, my motives might not always come through, or my heart might not always come through. So there's a need for me to be able to say to you, my community, that for, for my integrity be, to be realized, for me to have joy in my life, there's a, there's a prophetic aspect to my calling. 
And it's not necessarily aimed at you. Even if you don't like my words, if I put something on, on social media, I'm not talking right at you. Maybe I am, but I'm not necessarily talking right at you. And if we disagree on that, that we can be in conversation rather than in the process of breaking fellowship. The pastoral message, I call it, um, this is God's will. In 1 Thessalonians, where I was landing this week, the back half of chapter 5, you can read it. I think we have it for the screen. We see final instructions um, given by Paul. You know, Paul's letters, he does this. He, he writes an introduction, then he gets into the theology, then he gets into some practical considerations, and then he's running out of space and time, and he starts just, um, just throwing these kind of bullets at us disconnected little thoughts and one-liner bullet points because that's what we do when someone's leaving us. I remember when I was leaving my mom, like when I was growing up, if I was going to camp, don't let anyone take your clothes. I put your, your name on all the tags. Don't worry about it. Like, don't get sick. Don't get poison ivy. Don't, hey, remember to call me. Remember to, to do this. When Tamara and I were driving away the, the, the night of our marriage, she leaned into Tamara and said, call me when you get there, right? Um, it's, and, uh, this is what we do with our loved ones. We give them final instructions. We pass along what, what matters to us so that we know that they hear us, so that we know that we're in relationship, so that we know we're going to get it right. And so Paul, at the end of the God, uh, these, these epistles, he, he shotguns it. Why does he do that? Partly because of space. The way people wrote in the New Testament, they had these, these tablets, wooden tablets, coated with wax. It was like their moleskin version. And they would, they would write in the wax with a sharp object, and then when they wanted to start over, they would just smooth it out and write again. We, you know, over time, none of those notes really survive. None of it. But this is the, the most basic way of, of writing in Jesus' time. And then things that were really important, they would either take it on the calfskin, leather, or they would take it on to, to parchment uh, or, or papyrus, a form of paper made out of reeds, cross-hatched, and then pressed down. And these things were both incredibly expensive. And they would write on those. And the reason we have so little of that left is that most of the Roman world, when you have an archive or a house and the building collapses and dirt piles up, if you go to Rome now, you got to go 40 feet deep, really, to go to ancient Rome. You know, you're, you're a couple levels below street level walking around in those ruins that they've had to excavate out. That, that over time, that, that cities, as they kind of crumble, it gets built up, dirt gets filled in, uh, all of it, right? So, so all of the writings of the Roman world are like burying a newspaper in your backyard and expecting it to survive for two, three, five years. We don't have them. What do we have? We have things from Egypt that were put in tombs because it was so dry and those tombs sealed that it preserves it 2,000 years. Or the Dead Sea Scrolls, lowest place on earth, the Dead Sea, and that in the caves around there in jars, we had some of these scrolls and other things, uh, a series of them, and they were preserved for 2,000 years. That's why we have these sketchy bits from, from antiquity. But these things were so expensive, the parchment was and the scrolls, that, that when Paul's writing on the road, he might be writing to space, meaning he has limitations. He's not just going to the next page on his, his word processor, and he's not just um, grabbing another sheet of paper from the notebook and continuing on. It's like when I write on a note card. I do it rarely, and I usually don't fill up the space enough, right? And if you're a guy, you know what I'm talking about. So you write big so that when you, you, it doesn't look too awkward so that you actually get credit for the handwritten note. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes you actually, you're feeling it. You're like, man, this person's going to get a handwritten note from me. This is really cool. And then you think of, oh, I could talk about whatever. And you start writing. And you're like, oh, i got to flip it over. You flip it over. You keep writing. And then all of a sudden you're like, shoot. I'm out, I'm out of room. And I didn't finish it. i got to start writing really small. And then, and, then you, and then you get to the sign-off, and you're like, sincerely, like, Ken. And then you're like, shoot, I wrote all the stuff, and they're not even going to see my name because it's, like, so small. I ran out of space. Paul, with a lot of his writings, is probably writing on something that's, that he had access to, was given to him, that, that limits his space. Um, some of it. 
arguably, is because of limited space. And so when he gets here, you just imagine a pastor's heart wanting to talk to these people that he might never see again. Why? Because the guy is under threat all the time of, of being killed. He's already been stoned before. They've thought he was dead before. He's, he's got a, a, you know, a near-death experience and coming back from the dead. And so you have this crazy thing where this guy's saying, here's my heart to these people. And so, interestingly enough, you see the phrase, the will of God, show up in closer proximity more often in 1 Thessalonians than anywhere else in, in the New Testament. We see it just in chapter 3 about sexual immorality, and then we see it here again in this passage where Paul is saying, be joyful always, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And a lot of us are worn down right now. And uh, talking to Brother Aaron this week at an elders meeting, reminded of that fact that oftentimes pastors can be so passionate, so prophetic maybe, that we begin to tie up loads on people's shoulders. And over time that becomes a little bit too heavy. Like, man, I just don't feel like I can make it through life. And Ken, I feel like you don't like me because you're always preaching at me. And I'm, I'm, I'm over-characterizing it. I don't, I don't actually do that. I'm just saying that, that could be the tendency. We started Antioch by taking the message version of Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, verses 28 through 30. And it said this. We, we framed our whole identity documents off of this verse where Jesus says in the message translation, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Does that sound good? That's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. See, as a pastor, the, the idea is that my, the way I see my kids is most all the time the way I see our community. See, the way I see my kids is they can do no wrong. Until they do wrong, I yell at them, they fix it, and then they can do no wrong. But, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I love them. If they don't do a good job at something, like, I understand why they don't do a good job of it. And I, and I, and I give them grace. I'm like, I understand how they got hurt. When the, when the teams are getting picked, I'm like, pick my kid, even if my kid's not good at this. Because, man, that would be so special for, for my kid. Other parents are going, your kid's not good. Does, doesn't deserve to be picked. Like, we, we have grace. I understand why my kid's acting out right now. If, if your kid acts out, however, I'm like, you got to get, get a hold of your kid. That behavior is unacceptable. Like, what kind of parent are you? Like, can't you see the body language I'm sending your way that I'm annoyed with the noise your kid's making? So, like, can't you understand you've got to deal with their behavior? If it was my kid, I'd be making excuses. Oh, if you understood my, my daughter's heart. If you knew my daughter like I knew my daughter, like, you'd be trying to help me put love and grace into that. Like, we treat our own kids with grace. We treat other kids based on their behavior. Does that make sense? And the challenge for us as a church is to look at each other, even in a politically charged climate, and to say, I'm going to see you. I'm going to not just see the surface of you. I'm going to see you, your fears, your hurts, your trauma. I'm going to try and listen to your story. I'm going to try and understand why you feel the pain you do. I'm going to try and feel that in such a way that, that I'm going to have grace for you. Tamara brought a saying into our marriage that if all were known, all would be forgiven. If I really understood your story, I'd understand your dysfunction. And if you understood my story, you'd understand my dysfunction. So I want to know you so that it comes to grace I don't want to, and I don't, I don't want you to either look at me and our relationship becomes about behavior. It's what the Pharisees did. It's what Jesus came to crush. Jesus came to crush that to say, when you are in me and you know the love of God, you're filled with grace. Grace begets grace. And you can look at other people and say, no matter how, we, uh, how much we mess it up, we can always start over the next day. 
You see, God, we're worried about portraying him as a stern God. God is stern sometimes, but always with a righteous anger because he wants us to be in the right place where we have joy, where we are in fellowship with him, and where we can give thanks. It's God's will for us that we have joy, that we're in fellowship with him, praying without seeing, that we know gratitude. It is God's will. When we pray Jesus' prayer, Father, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I pray that, I'm actually praying that reality would be such that your joy would be complete your relationship with God established, and your graciousness, your thanksgiving, your gratitude would, would emanate from you. That, that that would be the fullness of your life. When I pray for God's will, I'm not praying that the interest rates go up or down so that I can make an investment. I'm actually praying for myself and for you that together we'd be able to unite into this kind of Christ-likeness that the world is dying to see that shines that doesn't have to argue about politics in, in the way that the world does, but can listen to another person and say, even if we disagree, I feel your pain. And you know what? I might even go think about, read, study, and come back to you some more because at the end of the day, I want to know you. And to whatever degree I can fight for you and, and stand with you, I want to be able to do that. And by that example, you might invoke the same response in them. And together we come to Jesus and we realize that the, the, the yoke or the burden he places on us is very different, very different than the weight we feel when we're serving the city of man. That the city of God, the one that has to do with laying down life, laying down liberty, laying down property, actually is the one we want to call for. I want the king of the Jews I don't want Barabbas. Self-interest, self-preservation might look good, but I actually want to live a different kind of life that, that looks like foolishness to the world and is going to be marked and characterized by faith on my part so that I can know the fullness of God's will, which is my joy, my relationship with him, and my thanksgiving. That's why two chapters earlier when it was God's will that we not engage in sexual immorality, why is that? Because sexual immorality, bad sexual behavior, is infidelity with God. And that breaks relationship with God. So if this is God's will on this hand, it's also God's will that we not end up over here. I've said it before, we like to, to write God into our story, but God prefers to write us into his. God doesn't have wills in the plural, a will for me and a will for you. God has a will, singular. We both get to serve and love up into that. And that's why Jesus prayed for unity. Jesus was, was praying in John 17 that they might be one. And that's all he wanted was them to be one. It seems so simple in our love, living into God's will, that we be one. But everything in life is pulling us a different direction especially our own self-interest, especially the fact that we don't exist in fellowship necessarily with other believers to the degree that we hear them and can be in relationship despite our disagreements. And Jesus is like, so much in the world is going to pull you away. God, protect them, the church, that they might be one. And lastly, the priestly sermon, which is just titled Joseph of Arimathea. George Saad, who's a pastor in Beirut, I met him in the Netherlands, uh, and he was an unbelievable man. He leads a, a, a church, a Christian church of a couple thousand people, mostly refugees. Um, and he was telling me the story of uh, just a couple weeks ago, driving in a car with a Muslim man, and he was wanting to, to, to preach to the Muslim man. And so he said to the Muslim man, he says, do you know that Jesus loves you and died for you? And the Muslim man freaked out and looked at him and says, well, where, when is his funeral? I must go. I must go to this man's funeral. You tell me he loves me. He died for me. Where is his funeral? I must go. And George was like, oh, my gosh. This man's never heard of Jesus. 
And George continued to talk about what he's doing to, to love the church, the Christian church in Syria and Lebanon and other places where it's facing incredible persecution. And he brought us to this metaphor, Joseph of Arimathea, and it simply is this out of Mark chapter 15. So when Jesus has died, it's an evening approaches Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council. So the, the council that acted out of self-interest and arranged for Jesus' death. He's a part of that. He could dim his light to be covered by that, to hide into it. The deed was done. Jesus' disciples have run. Nobody else is around. Joseph of Arimathea, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body of Jesus, bore the weight of Jesus' dead body on himself, pulled the nails out of Jesus' flesh that were driven into wood. This, this man took that weight of Jesus' body onto himself. He wraps it in linen, cares for it as if it's his own body, and then he goes and places it in a tomb cut out of rock that had been prepared for himself. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So they watched, the women that had been following Jesus watched from a distance as this Pharisee went out of his way to shoulder the burden of the body of Christ in its time of need. They say to me that millennials have given up on the church. Um, there are parts of the church that feel like white evangelicals have given up on them. There are other parts of the church that have given up on, on let's just say that everyone's given up on everyone. There are people that are close that have run. There are people that were following and listening that have moved on to the next thing. It's dark and the church, the body of Christ sits here. Um, in need. The bride of Christ, the body of Christ in need. And so I guess the Joseph of Arimathea call that G George Saad put on me that as a priestly kind of idea we need to wrestle with is are we willing to put a shoulder up underneath the body of Christ and carry the body of Christ, the church, in its time of need to make sure we keep it centered on its witness and its mission, that we have the light and the salt in this world to, to be those who would reflect Jesus to people who are really confused about the church. You see, I went through the Gospels, and other than the mule that carried Jesus and Mary who carried Jesus once through pregnancy and a second time into exile as a refugee, Jesus was carried by his mother into Egypt as a refugee and then returned. I couldn't really find hardly anywhere in Scripture where, where people carried Christ. And I began to realize this self-interest thing goes really deep. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they came back to me. He says, you just want me because I feed you. You just want me because I feed you. You're coming at me because of your self-interest. You're coming at me because of the message. You're coming at me because I heal you. You come at me because I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I understand that. You come at me as kids because you sense my love. You come at me as the woman who has a problem with bleeding because I'm your only hope. You come at me as a woman of ill repute because no one else is available for you. But you guys come at me. There's very few times when that gets flipped around and somebody says, as someone serving God and God's purposes for this world, I now will shoulder the burden and carry the body of Christ in its position of need. So I'm a Gen Xer. Maybe you're a boomer and you're mad that we haven't built a building yet and we meet in a school because boomers are builders. 
Um, Gen X's are entitled. I feel entitled for you to like me and to like the sermon. And it makes me angry every Sunday when you don't do what I feel entitled that you should do. Um, and you millennials are scoffing at me right now because all you care about, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> if I said anything right there, I'd be wrong because anyone that talks about millennials that's not a millennial immediately gets castigated, right? Is there somebody? I'm, you guys are leaving me naked up here. Somebody tell me I'm right. I, I don't have a right to talk about millennials. Somebody? Anyways. We all come from a culture. We all come from a background. We all come with certain values. But the body of, the, of Christ is our body. And we're all members in it. And it's, it's what God gave to us that we might come together and be united. And we all should have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. And we all need each other's encouragement. And we all need to be sharpened by each other. And we all have this beautiful opportunity in a world that seems to have lost its way to come back under and say, we're not going to just be a part of the noise. And we're not going to shut people down or out uh, we're not going to dim our light and go, you know, I'm just going to navigate away from all of the conflict because that'll be easier. We're going to come together. We need to come together, Antioch, and shoulder the weight of the body of Christ that needs some people to actually still care about this prophetic thing that God has given us. Amen? So let me just read in closing something from the Valley of Vision, which is a prayer book my wife and I have gone to several times. And uh, I'll just read this in closing. But it's a prayer written on love. It says this. Let me see thy love everywhere, not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise thee who art the son of righteousness with healing power. And when I feel the tender rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. And when I walk by the riverside, may I praise thee for that stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes white my robes, that, I'm, that I may have the right to the tree of life. Thy infinite love is a mystery of mysteries, and my eternal rest lies in the internal enjoyment of it. Father God, may your will be, be made manifest in this body, in my life, that I would know joy in you, that I would have continuous fellowship and prayer with you, and that that would spring up to a gratitude and a thanksgiving, no matter what the trials or the difficulties in my life, because of the relationship and the hope that I have in you through your Son, Christ Jesus. And so we give you all the glory and all the praise. Amen.